Hey, and welcome back to the history of China. As per the usual, remember to check out the website at dormroomhistory.com slash the history of China for the post for this week's episode and post for all the other episodes. Now, a special thanks again to those of you who have donated and be sure to follow the show and rate it five stars if you can. It may not seem like anything to you, but it means a lot to me. And hey, share the show with friends. The recent growth of the show has been truly unprecedented and amazing, and I really cannot thank you all enough. But into the show. Last week, we discussed the rapid expansion that started before the Han Xiongnu War, but that really hit its stride in the decade after Mo Bay. The southern regions of Dian, Minyue, and Nanyue, and of course, modern-day Korea, all of them began to fall under the control of the Han Dynasty. We also covered Emperor Wu in more detail, but what if I told you there was still some conquest left to do? So, without further ado, and no, don't worry, there is more than just conquest too, The History of China, Episode 35, The End of Emperor Wu. For the sake of not getting too bogged down, I will also speedrun this next conquest mission a little bit. No, you will not be depraved of all the details, but with history, everything's its own rabbit hole. Every little person or event or war or policy can really be a whole podcast of their own if one tried hard enough. So in the sake of moving through this chronologically and getting to other things besides Emperor Wu in the near future, just bear with me here. So, a preview to the next two conquests-slash-geopolitical maneuvers. Whatever you want to call them. First up is the Northwest. Modern-day Xinjiang. Yes, that Xinjiang. And this was a region that was known at the time and had tribes of the Xiyu. X-I-Y-U. And in 108 BC, Emperor Wu... Yes, and I know, within one year after his Korean conquests, set about trying to bring that region under Han control. When I say Emperor Wu just doubled the size of the Han dynasty, I was not kidding one bit. He literally does that, and you can see that he is doing it. The Xinyu, for their part, most of the tribes, seemed to read the writing on the wall. After several were beat quickly and forced out, the leadership of most sought to strengthen their ties with their new Han overlords. They said, all right, look, we're not, we're not going to beat them. Might as well get all the benefits of being within the Han dynasty. And Emperor Wu, for his part, was happy to oblige. He married off a princess to the Xiyu Wusan tribal king. So yes, the Wusan are a tribe in the Xiyu region. Things are going well. A lot of these tribes are beginning to, and kingdoms are beginning to voluntarily come over. They've seen what's happened. They've heard the rumors. They are not all going to try and fight the Han. But the Wusan region was one thing. And as you all know by now and are well accustomed to, other nearby regions will not be as cool with the new administration showing up. They're not going to be as excited, per se and not going to be as willing to simply marry off and make peace with the Han Dynasty. And one such region and kingdom in this area 
that was not about it, was not about the Han Dynasty at all, was the kingdom of Da Yuan, way out to the west, in modern-day western-western China, right near Wusan to the southwest. Of course, maps for all of this will be available for this week's post on the website. But, nonetheless, in 104 BC, the kingdom of Da Yuan said, you know what? No, we're not going to give tribute. And they refused to give the demanded allotment of their best horses for the Han Dynasty. They said, no, we're not going to do it. Things then proceeded to escalate. Fast. Like, man, that escalated quickly sort of moment. The Han sent ambassadors. They figure out that this region has decided to refuse to pay the horses. And so the Han sent ambassadors after this refusal, probably to say, hey now, let's clear up any issue and just give us the horses. Then these ambassadors then allegedly insulted the king of the Da Yuan, and all the ambassadors were killed. Yikes. Refusal to pay your tribute, that's one thing. Then killing all the Han ambassadors? I wouldn't file the Da Yuan's foreign policy in the path of least resistance category. As the young people say, the Da Yuan kingdom wanted all the smoke. And initially, the Da Yuan kingdom could handle the smoke. Because in 103 BC, the Han Dynasty, after finding out that their ambassadors have now been killed, sent a 26,000-man force to quash this rogue kingdom. But history often repeats itself. And the exact same thing that happened in the South happened here. Follow with me here. The Han sent in a smaller force compared to what it could actually put in the field if it wanted to, and this force is realistically under-equipped. And so this smaller force, probably under-equipped, goes out and it loses. Though I said history repeats itself. Because the next year, just like after the Han lost in the South, they said, okay, time to take this more seriously. And they send in a much larger and much more capable force. In 102 BC, the Han sent not 26,000, maybe not equipped perfectly troops, but 60,000 troops under the command of Li Guangli, the same guy who got defeated the year before. And don't worry, we're going to hear more about Li Guangli. And just like a few years earlier, this newer, bigger, and more grand invasion force overwhelms and defeats the smaller kingdom. The Han actually get to the Da Yuan capital, they cut its water supply off, right out of the Art of War playbook, mind you, brutally besiege the city, and eventually got their 3,000 prized horses from the Da Yuan kingdom. Easy. All in a day's work for the Han dynasty. The clinical victory the Han put on showed any remaining Shiyu kingdoms and tribes that may have been eyeing their options that, well, it was best to submit. Things did not go well for the Daoyuan kingdom. And anyone else that was saying, oh, well, maybe we could, oh, and then they watched the Daoyuan kingdom get crushed and said, you know what, maybe it's time to follow the rest and throw our lot in with the Han dynasty. 
that brings us to our second geopolitical slash war slash conquest move. Emperor Wu wanted to eviscerate the remaining Shonu tribes. I've said it already, but the Shonu were still kicking, and in 103 BC, they had even gotten a small tactical victory. But after watching the Han wipe the floor with the Daoyuan kingdom, and then realizing that, well, now the Han have done all their conquests, they can just point all of their military might right at us. So they began to kick a little bit, realized the Han were now free of distractions, and realized that it was best to sue for peace again. Peace was looking obtainable, too. Negotiations were moving. Until the Xiongnu found out that the Han ambassador that was negotiating had plans to assassinate the Chanyu. Yeah, that's not a very good thing to have when you're trying to negotiate peace. So there was no peace. In 99 BC, General Li Guangli, the Han general who beat the kingdom of Daoyuan, would actually be captured by the Xiongnu. Then his grandson, Li Guangli's, was alleged to be training Xiongnu soldiers. So the whole clan that was in the Han dynasty, those that were left physically in the dynasty, were put to death. The Xiongnu, they may be down and out, but they are still kicking, and they're going to keep kicking until they fade into the history books. I know it's confusing. I said Mo Bay was decisive, and it was. But you have to understand, they're not gone. And these steppe tribes are going to still be here for thousands of years, but they're going to still be kicking these Xiongnu tribes. But yikes. Let's take a step back. For the last, like, four episodes, it's been a lot of war. Clearly. And anyone who has sat in a high school history class is probably sitting back saying, all right, well, who's paying for all of this? Those in America who are listeners, you all know. The Seven Years' War between Britain and France led to what? Taxation of the people. And also, people don't like getting taxed. Because wars cost money. We know that. Soldiers, supplies, weapons, food, wagons, horses, clothes, helpers. You can just imagine that all of this, for 15 years and more, all over modern-day China and Korea and Vietnam, with all of these conquests, it's going to cost a lot of money. Now add in the fact that each region that they conquer then needs to be garrisoned and maintained, and it's yikes. It's a financial nightmare. Oh, and to make matters probably a little worse, Emperor Wu did not try and save money for his wars and conquests by limiting his own lifestyle. Emperor Wu lived large, and he was not going to allow expensive wars to bite into that. So in 104 BC, for example, he builds a massive personal palace because he wanted to live closer to the gods. And don't worry, we'll get to that too. But so he's out here building luxurious new massive palaces. He's sending armies across all of modern-day China and into modern Korea and Vietnam. But new palace? Luxurious lifestyle? Look, that alone can bankrupt an administration, and we've seen it because it has before all over the historical world. Now again, tossed in all the expenses of endless war and conquest, 
Good lord, what is Emperor Wu going to do? Well, let's just say he didn't maintain his predecessor's extremely low, historically low, 3% tax rate. That was going to go up. And now, quick background info. Emperor Wu, around this time, also divided the dynasty into 13 prefectures, and each one was governed by a supervisor. And now, this is what's interesting. These supervisors were not permanently stationed in a prefecture. No, they would rotate, visiting different prefectures to prevent corruption. You saw this with Rome. This was a problem. Governors would go there, proconsuls would stay there, sit there, and be there for years, and eventually milk it for their own well-being. And now this system would say, okay, well, we're just going to rotate. And it has its pitfalls because no one's going to be there all the time to really understand the nuances and differences and little idiosyncrasies of each prefecture. But anyway, in many of these prefectures, the new taxes that were being levied to fund the lifestyles and the wars and the conquests, well, these new taxes got the peasants up in arms with pitchforks in their hands if you catch my drift. They were revolts. Now, these small revolts were a problem, obviously, but they were never actually organized or planned well enough or coordinated with other regions. So annoying and problematic? Yes. But for the time being, in around 100 BC, these peasant revolts were not a super serious dynasty-threatening issue. They were annoying, and they needed to be dealt with, and... Well, Emperor Wu had policy for it, but they weren't ever going to bring the dynasty down. Now, quick fun fact about this, Emperor Wu, in a more almost legalistic mindset, would punish the supervisors of prefectures that had peasant revolts that weren't quashed. But obviously there began to be a lot, and so these supervisors began to realize that it was probably better to just not report that they ever happened. So... Bad policy, yes. But that brings us to the last big thing about Emperor Wu. And I think it's one of the more fascinating ones because we've gotten to know him in a conquest and political theory sense, but this is, this is himself. Because he was obsessed with witches. I mean, this guy was utterly scared of witches. And he sought to persecute witches and people who performed witchcraft wherever he found them. It was a big deal. And no, witchcraft is not in the Western contemporary Salem sense where it's a female. Anybody could be a witch. That's sort of the way the translation works. But yes, any gender can be a witch. So far, Emperor Wu up until this point, while showing some faults, has been, has been a truly transformative leader and an emperor. His impact is literally still felt today in so many ways. Regions of China that are now part of China were first brought into the fold by Emperor Wu. But it's in this scenario, in this situation, that we begin to see some real flaws bubble to the surface. Real big flaws. Absolute power corrupts Absolutely. And I know I've been pretty quickfire the last few episodes. So let's just take a step back here so we can think on some of these deeper questions. Because I enjoy that, you know, at times to put myself in the position of others. Emperor Wu 
is the Son of Heaven. While you and I may disagree with that on a literal sense, no one during that time did, not even Emperor Wu. To them, it was true. The Stanford Prison Experiment occurred in the 1970s in the United States, and it showed just how fast humans put in a position of authority abuse that power, even in the most arbitrary and fake way. Even if it's not real power, it gets abused quickly. Now imagine being the emperor of the Han Dynasty. You're just a man. You're just a person. Being the son of heaven since you were young. The power is almost incomprehensible. I, I can't even think about it. Not only do you wield nearly absolute power, but people aren't always on board with that. Assassination attempts, constant undermining, and the pressure to do well by yourself, heaven, your court, and your people. It's a lot of pressure. So if I told you that in 96 BC, Emperor Wu began to act a little paranoid, would you really be that surprised? History paints these incidents of paranoid leaders as some sort of surprise, and though in all honesty, these leaders, while giving in to paranoid urges, most likely handle the pressure of their role better than literally any of us could. So it's time to get a little personal with Emperor Wu. Because in 96 BC, he has a dream. A very, very bad dream. In this dream, he is whipped mercilessly by small puppets armed with sticks. And he also sees a ghostly assassin in this dream, or called a vision. We have all had bad dreams. But especially in the ancient world, these dreams often carried great meaning to those that had them and those that heard about them. Dreams were not taken lightly. After waking up and or snapping to, Emperor Wu is thoroughly rattled. He shook. This was not just some figment of his imagination that he can just brush off. No, no, no. This dream was a sign. So he orders a whole host of investigations into it and the people around him. And, well, harsh punishments are doled out, often being execution. A huge number of high-ranking government officials are killed. All because they were accused of witchcraft and some weird relation to these visions and this reality that Emperor Wu now sees the world through. On top of all of this, not only would these officials be killed, but their whole clans along with them too. It's really a paranoid nightmare. I mean, the prime minister, the sisters of the crown prince, and a whole lot more people got caught up in this wrath of paranoia. It reminds you of Stalin almost. Wei Qing's oldest son gets executed, the general from the Han Shongnu War. It really is as chaotic and absurd as it sounds. It's a witch hunt. Again, absolute power corrupts absolutely. This really deadly purge on the bounds of witchcraft spilled into other things because it spilled into the succession issue. Now, in the interest of time, I'm going to run through this one particularly quickly because it is confusing. But long story short, 
These literal witch hunts throw a monkey wrench indirectly into these succession plans. Emperor Wu's getting old. He needs an heir. But this witch hunt where people are killed, some kids are born, but at the end of the day, the literal actual witch hunt left Emperor Wu with no actual clear heir. During the witch hunts, his crown prince ends up revolting because he was framed for being a witch and he loses and he dies. Yeah, I mean, it's no other way to put it but a huge black mark on Emperor Wu's otherwise spectacular and fascinating record. And when a witch hunt is happening, what always happens in a witch hunt, and this is what happened to the crown prince too, but when a witch hunt is occurring, and it's completely absolute and it's unhinged and it's off the rails, people begin to throw other people in front of the witch hunt in order to better themselves. Don't like your neighbor? Accuse them of being a witch. Boom, neighbor gone. Want that government post? Well, accuse the post holder of being a witch and boom, you get their job. You can see how this could get quickly out of hand. And it really did. Because Emperor Wu would just execute people with a kangaroo court if there was a court at all. Because it was indeed absolute. And this witch hunt lasted for literal years. And that's what really got the succession issue thrown into flux. A witch hunt is inherently illogical, but once it takes hold, it's utter anarchy. The government, the imperial court, the military, all of it was shaken up in a multitude of ways by this witch hunt of Emperor Wu. Now, this is where the story takes an unpredictable turn. The witch hunt ends. It doesn't sound too crazy, but when you get a paranoid and absolute leader going off the deep end, even being brought to persecute his own crown prince, leaders like that usually never come back to reality. Never. However, in 92 BC, a religious official informed Emperor Wu that he himself had had a dream, and that in it, Emperor Wu had told him that he should have given a lesser punishment to his crown prince. This religious official had had a dream, and in it, Emperor Wu had told him that. And from the histories written, it appears that just like that, Emperor Wu, the real one, had a back-to-earth revelation. He realized quickly that all the executions had been often under false pretenses, and that the witch hunt, looking back, was an unmitigated disaster. And get this, the Son of Heaven apologized. Literally. He really, according to the available histories on him from the time, realized he at times had been totally off in the deep end and issued the repenting edict of Luntai, an apology to the entire Han dynasty. It's public, by the way. It's really just a fascinating moment. And I know that I've spent like five episodes on one emperor. But Emperor Wu is such an enigma at times. He is just utterly fascinating. On one hand, he's a continuation of the Emperor Wen and Emperor Jing 
policy spectrum. But on the other, he's a step back in ways. He's almost legalist at times. While he uses the foundation of his predecessors, he also adds his own spin onto things. He forces through Confucianism, yet is entirely caught up in his superstitions in a way that no one really else has been in a very long time. After this realization around 92 BC, Emperor Wu was really a changed man. He brought the troops home, literally, stopped expanding, and even lowered taxes a bit. The conquests were done. But he also seemed to give up having a son, or another one, because he never made an empress dowager. Emperor Wu, it seems, to have said, I've done enough. The witch hunt chaos shook things up, but in the grand scheme of things, it did not destroy all he had built in any way. Yes, it was a black mark, and it threw some things into flux, but it did not wipe away really that much of Emperor Wu's legacy. His conquests were still there. But in 88 BC, Emperor Wu fell ill. And from this, he realized that his time was coming. Realizing he had no son via an empress dowager, he named Li Fu Ling, his six-year-old son via a concubine, as his heir. It's not ideal, six-year-olds are never ideal. But in 87 BC, Emperor Wu, after ruling for all that time, died. Wow. Emperor Wu ruled for around 60 years. That's utterly astonishing. He again doubled the size of the Han Dynasty and brought Han Chinese culture to most all regions that represent modern China. He was one of the most important movers and shakers in all Chinese history. But I was intrigued to see who he is most often contemporarily compared to in terms of Chinese emperors. There's a comparison tossed around. Emperor Wu was harsh. He often let his superstitions lead the way. Oftentimes at the detriment of the people. He was a military conqueror to a high degree, and he was probably intrigued with immortality. Yes. He was sort of like Qin Shi Huangdi. Anyway, that is enough for this week. In the coming week, I'm thinking of a supplemental, or a full-length episode, or we'll see how it goes, for Sima Qian at the behest of some of you. I've got about three emails asking for a Sima Qian special, and I think this is the time to do it. Sima Qian, at this point in history, is dead, or in his later years, depending on where in the episode uh, you were. Now, I also have the ability to do a supplemental about Han culture. Question is, do you want me to just keep on the chronological order, or would you guys be okay waiting a few weeks for the main story, and in the meantime get a Sima Qian and Han history special? It's up to you guys. And when I say Han history, I, I mean Han society. And yes, though, regardless, we will dive into Han culture. But before I let you go, I have a question to ask. How do you guys feel about the general pacing, chronologically? 
at this rate, this show will be going for a while, which I don't mind. I love doing the show, but I want to hear from you guys. Do you want me to go faster, slower? Are there preferences you guys have about subjects that I talk about, either too briefly or too in-depth? But, yeah. So be sure to go check out the website at dormroomhistory.com slash thehistoryofchina. Donate, like, follow, subscribe, share the show. We are growing at an incredible rate, guys, by the way. And uh, at the 50th episode, maybe I'll share some of the numbers. It's, it's truly incredible. But thank you so much for listening. And I will see you all next time on The History of China. <laughs>